Thank you, Paul, worship team. Good morning, everyone. If you would pull out your bulletin, now I'm starting to sound like Eric when he first opens this. I just want you to take a look at the front of your bulletin. If you don't pay much attention to your bulletin when you come in on a Sunday morning, you should. Because oftentimes they are a work of art. Not that they're hand-drawn, but they're carefully selected by Mary and put together every Saturday for us. And uh, so many times when, I, when I'm looking at them, I'm just amazed at what a great job she does at picking the pictures that go on front of them. You know, like, uh, for instance, you see Rahab, you see the scarlet cord that she put down where the, uh, the, the spies were able to escape. And, uh, you know, one time, uh, uh, several months ago, Mary, uh, she may have asked me what the name of my sermon was, and, you know, most of the time I, I never even get around to coming up with a name because, you know, it's usually a last-minute deal that I'm up here, kind of like today. And so sometimes Mary kind of picks one for me, and, um, you know, I, I'm just always amazed at how much better they are than what I could have picked. So thank you, Mary. Thank you for, I guess it's been years of putting the bulletins together. It's fantastic. Okay. Well, Tom Lee was scheduled to preach this morning, but he's having some, uh, some knee issues, so I am filling in for Tom, and um, actually, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the topic this morning is Rahab, and um, so... We're looking at we're looking at Rahab. She she was uh, she lived about three thousand four hundred years ago, approximately. You think about that for a second. How can a person who lived three thousand four hundred years ago, how can they have any impact or influence or message for us? And uh, I, I hope that by the end of the day, we, we can answer that question, because she really was an amazing an amazing person, and. Uh, her Rahab's actions, what she did back then, they show up in two different places in the New Testament. And one of the places in it is uh, Hebrews chapter 11, known as the Hall of Faith. I know everybody in here is familiar with that term, the Hall of Faith. Um, in fact, in fact, let's just let's just go over there to Hebrews chapter 11, real quickly in your New Testament. Let's look at uh, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Is there anybody in here who hasn't heard of that term, the Hall of Faith, for Hebrews chapter 11? All right. I didn't, I didn't think so. So, verse 1, the writer, he describes what faith is. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For, it is by, for, for by it the people of old received their commendation. All right, so that's the definition of faith. But then, the more amazing part about Rahab is she shows up again in the epistle of James in chapter 2, which you could, although I've never heard it called this, you could call it the hall of works. There's nothing catchy about that phrase. Uh, I'm sure it won't catch on after today either. But she shows up in chapter 2, and... appearing in both places, the Hall of Faith and the chapter on works, kind of makes Rahab like a professional athlete that, get, 
paid to play in two different sports, which is extremely rare, extremely rare. So I, I remember uh, Deion Sanders from the, from the 90s is the first one that I remember. But if we look, let, let's, just, let's just go ahead and jump over to James chapter 2. Just, uh, just the next book over. Let's see what it says, starting at verse 21. Was not, Ray, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works. We'll stop right there. Because when you read that section in James, you just want to object. You just want to say, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're talking about Abraham and his, his uh, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, which is probably arguably the greatest act of faith in the Bible, right? In, in Genesis chapter 22. And then James says, he moves on, and he says, and in the same way also Rahab. You say, wait a minute. If I was writing this epistle, James, I would not have put Rahab there. There's a whole lot of people to choose from, right? I would have maybe put Noah who worked on an ark for over a hundred years after God told them to build it? Or how about Moses? Or Joseph? Or Daniel? Or Daniel's three friends who ended up walking into a hot Babylonian oven? I would put any of those people and many, many more before I would have listed Rahab there. So you have to ask yourself, what is going on here? And and I hope you do this. I know I do this a lot. When you're reading your Bible, don't just try to figure out what is there, what it means, but also ask yourself, why isn't something else there? Or why is it written that way? Why doesn't this seem to make sense? Because you can find, you can find out so much more and get so many more blessings if you try to find out why this just doesn't, this just doesn't sound right. What's going on here? And so, so we, we, want to, we want to do that. But first, first before, before we do that, I want to clear something up. You've probably noticed in your Bibles when you're, when you're reading in Joshua chapter 2 and you come across Rahab, you, probably, you, you might see a little footnote there, a little reference. And you look down, it says, when it says Rahab the harlot or Rahab the prostitute, your footnote might say this word can also be, mean innkeeper, Right? Most of us have probably seen that. And so it, it makes you wonder, you think, man, has Rahab had a bad rap for 3,000 years? Was she just an innkeeper and not a prostitute? But fortunately, the New Testament writers, they clear all that up for us in Hebrews and in James because the word that they use for prostitute has no other meanings. So if you let the Bible be a commentary on the Bible and the New Testament explained the Old Testament, 
you can be assured that Rahab was indeed a prostitute and not just an innkeeper. So I wanted to, I wanted to clear that up. So let's jump back into Hebrews chapter 11 and let's see, I want to see just what does Hebrews say about Rahab and what does James say about Rahab? What did she do that was so amazing? So in Hebrews 11.31, the text says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Okay. And then you go over to James. You don't have to go to James. I'll just read it to you. What does it say about Rahab? It says, Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So in both cases, Rahab is commended for her business with the spies and how she treated the spies. That just if you stop there, that's just not enough, right? It's just not enough. In fact, if you looked at it on the, on the most superficial level possible, you might walk away thinking, well, I guess if spies ever come to my house, I need to treat them well, like Rahab did. Don't do that. If spies come to your door and they are telling you that they are going to, that their people are going to destroy completely your city, don't, don't think that welcoming them and treating them well would be a good idea. So we have to dig a little bit deeper to see why she is commended for this. So we have to go back, all the way back to the book of Joshua and Rahab's story and look at the context of it and her treatment of the spies. All right, so we're going we're gonna to go all the way back to Joshua chapter 2. But first, let's pray. Father, please open up your word today. Please, please let your Holy Spirit be present. And Lord, I just pray that, that, the, uh, that your word today can be a blessing. It can open our eyes and our heart in new ways, Lord. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. So, go back to Joshua chapter 2 in your Old Testament. And... As we're going through Joshua 2, I'm going to hit the pause button several times, okay? We're not just going to read through chapter 2. I'm going to stop and, uh, and add some commentary to it. So Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Starts out, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. All right? We'll pause here. The Jews, a million or so of them, are on the east side of the Jordan River, camped there. They're going to be going across, going into where they, where they walk around Jericho several times in a few days, going across the Jordan River. Jordan River, it's going to be dry. They're going to, they're going to go across much in the same way as they went across the Red Sea some 40 years earlier. And... They, uh, Joshua sends in two spies. Instead of 12 spies, like they sent 40 years earlier, Joshua sends two spies ahead. And let's read on. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So Rahab's house apparently is 
in the walls, the double walls of the city of Jericho. Must have had double walls, and her house is in there. Going to her house makes a lot of sense when you're a spy because you're on the, you're, you're on the outs, outer parts of the city. You're not going deep into the city to get attention. And also going to the house of a prostitute makes sense because that would be a place where strangers coming and going would, wouldn't probably attract a lot of attention, right? And so it, it makes sense. It makes sense that they would, uh, they would end, up, end up there. And let's continue on. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So apparently the king has his own spies. And these, and these spies are, are reporting right to the king of, of what, they're, what they're observing. And they must have observed the Jewish spies entering Rahab's house. So they have their intelligence network, and you would, you would expect that to be the case if you have a million Jews parked on the other side of the Jordan River. Jericho's only a couple of miles beyond the Jordan River. So you would expect that they would be on high alert uh, at this time. And, um, but, but Rahab somehow she also knows that the king's spy network has gone and reported this because she has taken the spies and hidden them up on the roof. So she's already taken action to hide the spies. So how, how she knew that, it's, it doesn't say, but apparently she knew that too. It was important for the king to get a hold of those spies for a couple of reasons. One, you would want to prevent the spies from returning back to Joshua and giving, them, giving him a report. But also, it would be nice to get a hold of those spies and get all the information out of them that you could. And so it was, it was important for, for him to get a hold of them. And he would not have sent just anybody to, to find those spies. If he had heard that the spies are at Rahab's house, I'm sure he sent some of his trained professionals, people who investigate these things, to go and look for the spies. And so, you know, these are the type of people who, if they came to you or my house, and we were, try, and we were to try to lie to them, we probably would not get away with it, Right? They would probably be able to detect either through our words or through our facial expressions or body expressions. They'd probably know that we were lying. But Rahab, apparently Rahab is a pretty convincing, she's a pretty good liar. Okay? And I don't know if that was a byproduct of her profession or what, but apparently she could pull this off without, gain, without uh, raising any suspicion. And, so, and, she, and she does a great job at it. I mean... It, when you, when, you, when you look back at uh, when the men came to her, let's, let's, go ahead and, let's go ahead and look and see what it says. It says, uh, this is Rahab's response. True, the men came to me. She didn't deny that the men came because obviously somebody saw the spies enter her house. So she doesn't deny that they came to her house. That would, that they would know that that was a lie right off. So it's, it's, it's a very, her response is fantastic. But she says, but I did not know where they came from. That's important too. Because if she 
says she knew they were Jewish spies, they would say, really, why didn't you report it then? Why didn't you come to us? And so this is a very well-crafted lie. By the way, whether it's okay to lie in certain situations or not, that you know, th- th- this is heavily debated by uh, theologians. I-, I have my, I have my, uh, uh, you know, answer to it. But but that's a different talk. But it, but, but I just want you to know that it's out there whether it was okay for her to do this. Um, and she doesn't know where they came from. And when and then she says, and when the gate was about to close at dark, the men went out. So you don't need to look here. There's nothing to see here. And then she adds on top of it, pursue them quickly. If you want to, guys, you can come in and you can look around, but these spies are already on their way back. And it's not a long distance for them to get back to, uh, to where the Jewish camp is. So if you, if you want, you can go ahead and search. But she puts schedule pressure, schedule pressure on them, and she says, go quickly, for you will overtake them. And so uh, y- you can see it's just a very, very well-crafted lie, and, uh, and it works. They leave and go off after them. Then we, let's move on. Let's move on. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction and as soon as we heard it our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath I want you to think about this for a second when Rahab tells the spies all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you I just have to picture the two spies standing here, maybe facing each other. And when Rahab says, when we heard about what happened at the Red Sea 40 years ago, everybody's hearts were melted. I just have to picture these two spies looking at each other and saying, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding. This would have been a nice piece of intelligence for us to have 40 years ago when we sent in the original 12 spies. If you remember, their report didn't include anything about the state of the people's hearts because they didn't know. They didn't know. So, but, but to be fair, to be fair, let's go all the way back to Exodus 15. Exodus 15. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to starting in verse 14. This is the chapter right after, I know we're jumping around in history a little bit, we're going back 40 years, that this is the chapter right after the, uh, the, the, the Jews have gone through the Red Sea and the Egyptians have been swallowed up by the Red Sea. All right. And if you remember, Moses constructs a song after that. It's a fairly long song. And I think our tendency might be 
at least mine is sometimes, when you come across these long songs in the middle of text, you kind of, okay, okay, I'm just going to jump. I'm just going to jump to the end of that and keep on going through the, uh, through the narrative. Um, but in this case, well, you never want to do that, but especially in this case, because what does Moses say right after they cross the Red Sea? Moses, Exodus 15, he says, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. So you see, Moses Moses recognizes, probably through the Holy Spirit, Moses recognizes that what God did at the Red Sea wasn't just to kill the Egyptians and keep them from overcoming the Israelites. Moses also sees that this was an act for the future. This, was gonna, this would come in handy later on when they were going to go into Canaan and all these other areas, Philistia, Edom, all these other areas. Their hearts are melted. Moses recognizes this now. Their hearts are melted because of what just happened to the Egyptians. But somehow, when you get, when you get over to uh, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, when the 12 spies go in, somehow they've forgotten all that. They're not connecting the dots on that. But, but I say we can't be too hard on them for that. Even though, you know, I, I could see Moses makes this song. I could see during their wandering through the wilderness, you know, they might be singing that song. That might, might have become a, a, a popular hymn that they, they might have been singing. But then I look at some of the words of some of the hymns that Paul has us singing on Sunday morning. In fact, the last hymn we're going to sing this morning, I looked at the words for that. And I think if archaeologists were to look back, you know, if the archaeologists out there in the future, if they were to look back and they were to, they were to look at this hymn that we're going to sing this morning, they would say, wow, those Christians there at FBF, look at what they believed. Words, words, uh, you know, talking about how, uh, you know, I, I can't remember the exact words, but how devoted we are to God, how God is our everything, how God is our every thought, how our hearts are overflowing with God, things like that. You know, if, if somebody looked back and see, that's what they were singing in their church, and then they said, and gosh, that must be what they were believing. I don't know about you, but sometimes, sometimes I'm out there singing and my mind will start to wonder and then I'll look back up and I'll say, hey, you know what? I just sang words to a hymn that says, all, of, all my thoughts are of you, God, while my thoughts were not of God and I was saying those words. And so I don't want to be too hard on the Jews for not remembering what Moses' song said, but it is there. It is there. They did have that information. But we need to look at Numbers chapter 13 and we need to look and see what, what was the report of the first group of spies. We want to do this because they were not looking at the whole picture. They were not looking at what was going on behind the scenes. They were only looking at what they could observe with their eyes. Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. This is the first group of spies. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron 
and to all the congregation of people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Remember, they were carrying grapes and figs, and I mean, it sounds like it was really good stuff, right? I mean, it was good stuff. And they told them, this is their report, we came to the land which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They put that first. They put that first in their report. Then they add, However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Then we skip ahead a couple verses, and they say, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it were great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the, who come from the Nephilim. That's giants. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, I love this, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Can you picture that? I mean, Egypt, we're back. You know, uh, we're back to be your slaves again. Sorry about that whole Red Sea thing, you know. Uh, we, we're coming back, you know, the, uh, throwing our firstborns into the, uh, into the Nile, you know. We want to start that all over again. Life was so wonderful back there. What if, the, what if those spies, though, had, had remembered or had known that God has caused the hearts of all those people to melt in fear? What if they had known that? And I think about, just as an example, a couple examples. Sometimes when I'm out running in the woods, especially if it's completely dark, and I come across a group of deer, maybe four or five deer. Sometimes I surprise them as much as they surprise me. I feel pretty good about that, that I can sneak up on deer somehow, a city boy. But I'll come up, there'll be four or five deer right next to the trail, and you know, I think to myself, you know what? If those deer were really angry with me for whatever reason, they could probably cause me some harm, you know, with their antlers and you know, uh, four or five deer could probably hurt me. But I never worry about it because I know that their hearts are melted with fear. Not me. I know that if I even move in their direction a little bit more, you know, if they scatter off a little bit, if I make some noise, they'll run even further. So I know their hearts are melted with fear. But at the same time, if I'm working around my house outside somewhere and I come across a wasp and I surprise it and it surprises me and it starts chasing me even though it's like smaller than my little finger I will run 
I will run as far and as fast as I had to because my heart is melting with fear. So the point is, it doesn't matter how big the enemy is or how fortified they are. If their hearts are melted with fear, you're going to win. And God had set them up with the parting of the Red Sea so that their hearts would be melted with fear because they knew that God was on their side. I mean, you know, when you think about it, what else should they have expected, those spies? When you go out and spy on a land, you should expect to see walled cities. You should expect to see trained armies. You should expect to see big people, perhaps, at least fit. Uh, you, you wouldn't expect that the people would, you know, hey, the, 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 the Jewish spies are here, take down the walls. You know, everybody look weak. They saw what you would expect to see, right? But it still scared them. And the Jewish spies, the way they brought back their report, caused their own people's hearts to melt with fear. In fact, later on in the, uh, in the book of Joshua, in chapter 14, when Caleb, Caleb is recounting the events, and Caleb says, but my brothers who went up with me, remember Caleb was one of the two good ones, right? Caleb and Joshua, they, they came back and with a good report. Two out of the twelve. But he says, But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. They caused the people's hearts to melt. Can you imagine if, if they were, would have changed the order of their report, the spies, instead of talking about, Boy, yeah, look at this great fruit, but we can't do it, and here's why. If they would have reversed the order, and if they would have said, you know what, the people are huge, the walls are high, there's fortresses, we look like grasshoppers, but hey, look at this fruit, look at the land, what the land can raise up. And God can do this. If they would have just reversed the order, but they, they had a different plan. They had a different plan. So I want to look at I want to look at it a little bit with Rahab. Now we're going to get back to why is Rahab's faith commended? Why are her works so commendable? We're going to compare her actions to the Jews in the wilderness 40 years earlier, compare her actions to their actions, and see why her faith was so commendable, and then we'll kind of rope us into the story too, see how our faith is doing. So what should we have expected from the wilderness Jews by the time we get to Numbers chapter 13 and 14? What should we have expected from them? Let's just think about it. They saw the ten plagues of God firsthand in Egypt, including the last one where the Passover, where their firstborns were spared and the Egyptians or anybody else who hadn't put the blood over their door, their firstborns were spared. They saw all those all those plagues. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Picture that. On dry ground with the walls of water on either side. And then they saw the Red Sea go back over the Egyptians and drown them. By the way, let me just put something in here. If you ever come across commentary that says Red Sea can also be interpreted as Reed Sea, You'll, if, you, if you see that, you just have to ask yourself, 
really? The Egyptian army drowned in a reed sea that you could walk through that maybe was ankle deep? You know, really? Anyways, I just throw that out there because you'll see it. Okay, so they saw the Red Sea parted. They saw water come from a rock. Water come from a rock. Manna falling from heaven every day. Well, six days a week anyways. Manna coming from a quail. Being fed with the quail. They built the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. They had the Ten Commandments. They had a pillar of fire and a cloud of God guiding their way across the desert and so on and so on and so on. Then they go and spy out the land and they only believe what they see. They don't, they, they don't account for anything that God is doing for them even though God had said he will give them the land. He said, go and spy out the land that I will give you but they only accounted for what they could see with their eyes. There was, there was no expressed faith whatsoever by the ten spies in their report. None at all. By the way, if you, if you didn't remember what happened to those ten spies who gave the bad report, it didn't work out well for them. God killed them with a plague, those ten spies. Killed them with a plague. What about Rahab, the Canaanite woman? What grounds did she have for her faith? Well, she lived in Canaan. She probably didn't get a whole lot of the Ten Commandments and, uh, you know, the whole book of Leviticus thing. She probably didn't. Obviously, she didn't know anything about that. She was raised as a Canaanite. But she had heard how the Lord had parted the Red Sea. And she heard what God had done, the Jews had done to two kings, Sion and Og, who was devoted to destruction. And she didn't personally observe any of that. And in fact, the parting of the Red Sea, she wouldn't have even been alive when that happened. When you think about it, that was 40 years ago. She wouldn't be 40 years at this, 40 years old at this point. She goes on after this, after this whole story, and she goes on and, and uh, converts to Judaism, marries a Jew, and ends up in the genealogy of Christ. Right? She didn't have, she didn't have kids or anything until, until later. She wouldn't have been alive. So she heard that story secondhand of the parting of the Red Sea. Didn't even observe it. But look what she does with it. She takes that story and she figures out that the God who can do that is the God of heaven and earth. And so when the spies come along, she sees that as a way to avoid destruction because she believes that their God is the God of heaven and earth based on a couple of things. Now compare that to the, compare that to the, the ten Jewish spies who had seen and observed and witnessed and ate manna cross through the Red Sea. Compare that, and you can start to get a feel for why Rahab's faith is so commendable. She had so little to go on. It really, she really does belong in a place next to Abraham. In the Epistle of James, she really does. 
So how do we compare? How do we compare to Rahab? How do we compare to the ten spies? What do we have as evidence for our faith? Well, even though we didn't personally witness all the miracles that the, uh, that the Jews in the wilderness witnessed, we have, it in, we have it in our Bibles, which we consider inerrant, right? We believe that it all happened. And we have the rest of the Bible. We have the rest of the stories. We have the prophets. We have the wisdom literature. We have the history books. We have the prophecies. All the prophecies we have that have been fulfilled. Then you get into the New Testament. We've got the Son of God coming and dying for our sins, being buried and being raised from the dead. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. Indwelling in us, right? We have the book of Revelation. We know how it ends. We have the story from the beginning to the end. We know that it has a good ending. It has a good ending for us. You just compare what we know, the information we have, the Holy Spirit we have, you compare that to what Rahab had and her response, and you can see why she is a very commendable figure. A very, very commendable. So what if you're in a situation, let's, let's take a look at the two situations. You have the Jews in the wilderness, they don't really have any immediate threats coming to them. All God is doing is instructing them to go forward. Go do something. Take your faith and move forward. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's... Maybe that's your situation. They were being fed manna. They were probably pretty comfortable in their situation. Maybe that's, maybe that's our situation. Are we pretty comfortable where we're at? Are we, are we just amassing more and more information, building, building this bigger foundation for our faith, but never doing anything with it? Never going into Canaan because we're comfortable? Or because the city looks too big, the people look too big. If that's us, if that's us, if that's you and me, if that's you and me, you, you know who? There's a parable about about us. If that's us, it's the parable of the talents, right? The, the, the servant, the servant that got the one talent when the master went away. Remember that? Remember what he did with the talent? He buried it. He buried his talent. You remember what the master said when he came back to that servant? It was not good. It was, it was very unpleasant. If we're just amassing more and more information and we think that we're doing well because of that, but we're not exercising faith, if we're not stepping into the uncomfortable, if we're not moving forward when we hear God's voice telling us to move forward, if we're not evangelizing, 
if we're not praying for our unsaved friends and relatives, but we're just reading our Bibles and gathering information, you're, we're, just like, we're just like the servant who, gathered, who, who hid the talent. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be there. That was the Jews in the wilderness. No, we, we're staying here. Actually, they wanted to go backwards. They wanted to go backwards. We're not moving forward, even though we have all these amazing acts of God. We don't want to be like them. Well, what about Rahab's situation? Rahab had a much different situation. Destruction was on the way. Absolute, inevitable, and total destruction was on the way to Jericho. She and her family was likely going to be killed. She didn't know spies were coming. All she knew was you had a million or so Jews coming to town. And she knew, she knew that their God was the God that parted the Red Sea, so she knew that they were going to be destroyed. You think about that. What would be going through Rahab's mind with that information before the spies arrive? It'd be pretty depressing. And then all of a sudden one day, a knock on the door. Who's there? Jewish spies. I doubt if they said that. But how weird is that? How weird is that that you are living in a city that's going to be destroyed? How are we possibly going to get out of this? How can we possibly be saved? And then God sends a couple of Jewish spies to your house. Boy, there's the answer. She sees that as the answer. It's, it, it, it's, it's just impossible. It's impossible that it could work out that way. So what, 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 what kind of impossible situations are in our life now? Okay? We're not talking about the Jews in the wilderness who just needed to go forward, but were kind of comfortable where they were at. We're talking about your impossible situation that you have going on right now where there is no answer. Destruction is on the way. There is no answer. I say there is an answer. There is an answer. Wait. Don't give up. Because God does amazingly strange things. I mean, look back at your own lives. I just look back at my life over the last few months and I see how God has solved problems that, that had no answer. This problem has no good answer. And you look and see how God solves them. So think about your biggest problem right now, the one that cannot be solved. God can solve it. He can solve it. It'll probably be unexpected. You won't see it coming. 